Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Started. I want to welcome everyone to this edition of Mountaineer Farm Talk. This is January 19th, uh, 2024. If you're just joining us again, Happy New Year, and we are glad you are with us. Uh, we've got a great show for today. We have a special guest, Dr. Andrew Weaver. He is the small ruminant specialist for North Carolina State Extension. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And we hear that uh, you have you have got your PhD there at uh, WVU. That's correct. Yep, uh, did my uh, PhD uh, there at WVU uh, from 2017 to 2020. Uh, yeah, defended my PhD there uh, uh, right after the the shutdown for COVID. Uh, so uh, it was uh, it was an interesting time to say the least. Uh, sorry about that. There's a phone ring in here. Let me mute that. Okay, and of course, uh, I've got my other co-host with me, with the most, uh, Evan Wilson from down in Mason County. Evan, how are you doing this morning? Doing good, JJ. Staying warm inside here, watching the, the snow keep coming down and piling up in the yard. And plow trucks just went by a little bit ago. So, state roads doing what they can, but they can't they can't cover it all at once. So, yeah, what's uh, well, it is January. Yeah, we're in the northern hemisphere, so we are expecting a little bit of winter weather. Yeah, and well, speaking of that, we had some um, the Mothman Museum there in town. There was it Tuesday they posted they had visitors from Australia come up. Oh, cool! To the Mothman Museum because you know it, it's summer break down there for those kids, so they came up here to check out the Mothman. Cool. Well, we also have with us um, from over in the Panhandle. Uh, Alex Smith, and she gets on here whenever we have uh, one of our focus on small ruminants. Alex, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, just trying to get out of the snow. And I got Brad here with me too, but he's being quiet. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> we're at home. We're we're home today because of the weather. Our courthouse closed, in. county office closed, and all that good stuff. Okay, well, we're glad to have you with us. Um, Andrew, tell us a little bit about the. Uh, I know that I was looking online, you have a small ruminant improvement program at North Carolina State. Tell us a little bit about that and and what a glimpse to what the sheep and goat industry is down in the Carolinas. Yeah, so uh, 
Uh, I started here uh, at NC State uh, shortly after I finished up my PhD. So it was summer of 2020. Um, so obviously we were in kind of that virtual uh, world uh, and uh, made for an interesting start uh, to my time here at, at NC State. But uh, as we went through the COVID pandemic, uh, I think we all realized that uh, the food supply chain uh, is very important and, and making sure that it's robust and we have sources, uh, reliable sources uh, to acquire meat products uh, at the local level. Uh, and fortunately, our state government recognized that uh, here in North Carolina and, and invested a substantial amount of money uh, into our, our medium, small, medium size uh, packing plants uh, here in the state. Wow. Uh, and a lot of those processed sheep and goats. Uh, so over a couple of years there, uh, around uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, we saw a 33% uh, uh, increase in total red meat processing capacity in the state of North Carolina, and our halal slaughter capacity doubled. Uh, we know that a lot of that halal slaughter is sheep and goats. Uh, and so we saw this huge demand uh, from a slaughter standpoint for small ruminants in the state. Uh, we looked at, there's a, a couple processors that do a lot, the majority of that, um, and we started looking at the number of animals that were being processed here in North Carolina, sold in North Carolina, uh, relative to the number of small ruminants that we had available in the state, uh, and realized that we could kill every small ruminant in the state of North Carolina in one year, barely meet slaughter capacity, and not have anything left for the future. Uh, and so uh, most of those packers are bringing in animals from out of state, uh, Texas, Arkansas, uh, to harvest every week. Uh, they're bringing semi loads in and I would love to see those animals be produced. It'd be great to have them produced here in North Carolina and at least have them be produced in the Southeast region uh, where we're not trucking them halfway across the country. So uh, knowing all of that um, and opportunities, interest among producers to grow and expand their operations, uh, we started the, the North Carolina Small Remnant Improvement Program. Uh, we were fortunate to acquire some funding from the Southern SARE organization uh, to support the, the efforts uh, with a really a, a basis of being, uh, let's provide the educational tools and the resources uh, and technology that's needed to, to allow for this increase in the small remnant populations. Uh, so we've we've been doing winter webinar series uh, the last couple years. Uh, we have workshop series that go on uh, each year in, in each different different region of the state. Uh, so we're trying to connect with pr producers both virtually uh, and in person. Uh, and a lot of these producers are new. Um, you know, they may have raised other livestock species before. Uh, some have not. They're just getting into to, to livestock production, and and small ruminants are a great fit for that. So uh, really, it's yeah, getting them the resources that they need to be successful. And we know that the data collection um, and, and quantifying our productivity is gonna be essential to, to making sure we make measurable improvements over time. Andrew, would you say that the Carolinas represent most of that Southeast area? I'm talking the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, as far as um, are more people finishing uh, sheep and goats on grass? Are they in feedlots? Um, and are are you seeing more of the uh, hair sheep compared to some of our um, wool breeds maybe that uh, can, or traditionally have been used to feed out um, sheep? Yeah, so uh, back to the first part of that question, 
Um, you know, most of it's grass-based, uh, by and large grass-based. We have a couple folks that will put lambs on feed for maybe a short period of time. Uh, our market uh, is 60 to 80 pound lambs and 50 to 70 pound goats. Goats go about 10 pounds lighter than the sheep. Uh, and so if, if you do a good job with your forage management and, and you management, when you wean those lambs at between 60 and 120 days of age, um, you, you're already probably two thirds of the way to slaughter weight. And so you really don't have that much further to go. Uh, so really it doesn't facilitate a, a large feeding industry because most people wean, you background those animals for a short period of time and they're pretty close to that slaughter weight. Uh, our packers, they do not want a, a carcass, a hot carcass weight over 40 pounds. So that really puts a cap of about 80 pounds on live weights. Uh, and so relatively small animals, um, you know, there's certainly a traditional, more of that traditional type market um, as well here. I don't, you know, would, I would say we're largely non-traditional, um, but we do have a little bit of that traditional component. Um, we certainly have, um, you know, some restaurants, grocery stores, and that that type of market available. But it's a relatively small number of producers that are are targeting those heavier weight slaughter lambs uh, for that more traditional like market. Uh, I'd say the vast majority of our producers are raising non-traditional ethnic type lambs that are slaughtered at a, a relatively light weight. And, and mostly sheep compared to goats and what breeds are they using so on paper uh we have about thirty thousand sheep in the state and forty five thousand goats uh although um i i think from what i perceive and and through conversations have experienced i would say that the sheep numbers are increasing uh goat numbers are probably remaining constant maybe even decreasing slightly um you know for a long time the parasites push sheep out of the state of North Carolina and really the Southeast region. Um, with the, the influx of hair sheep now and having sheep that are more adapted to the heat and the parasites, uh, people are realizing that, you know, I can, I don't have to shear and I can still have an animal that works in this environment. Um, and so they're, they're shifting to hair sheep, uh, you know, people that work with sheep and goats, you know, a lot of them realize that those sheep are maybe a little bit easier to handle um, and manage as compared to the goats. And so it's a maybe an easier animal for people to get started with. And for the folks that want to get big, um, it's probably easier to scale a sheep operation as well. So uh, it is more, um, you know, it, it, we see both. Um, a lot of the slaughter I think is, is on the sheep side. They do kill some goats. Uh, they tell me they would kill more goats if they could get them. They just can't find them. Uh, and so I think there's a market there for both. Uh, I think it really comes down to what producers are willing to raise and goats can bring a premium, but there's additional challenges with goats. Uh, sheep may be a little bit easier. Maybe you won't get quite the premium you do with a, an equal weight goat, but uh, you may have less into them as well. So it's it's really up to the individual producer and what fits their operation. The what, best. what were some of those parasite challenges they were, they were seeing back then and they worked around to get around those now? Yeah, so I mean, it all comes back to the barber pole worm, homunculus. We talk about it a lot. I think if you talk to any any sheep or goat person, they'll talk about uh, the barber pole worm. Uh, and it got to the point where you know most of our dewormers um, are not that effective, uh, and a lot of our traditional wool breeds are not very resistant. They're they're relatively susceptible to parasitism, and so uh, without that hair sheep option to fall back to, um, it was really like we're going to deworm these sheep on a regular basis because they're really susceptible. And then when our dewormers stopped working and we had no option, uh, either the sheep were going to die or we needed to sell them. And so 
they shifted to other livestock species um, and, and got out of the sheep deal. And then hair sheep came along, uh, specifically Katahdin's, uh, and we had an alternative that, you know, had that, that heat adaptability, that parasite adaptability, and people are realizing that, okay, I don't have to, wool's not really worth anything, so why incur the cost to take it off? Let's raise a hair sheep that I can raise. It's lower input. It's more adapted to our environment. Our market is, it's very satisfactory to our lightweight ethnic land market, so it really fits both the production system and a, a market uh, from a market standpoint in the state. What well, what were some of those additional challenges the goat producers are seeing compared to the lambs you mentioned? Yeah, so the goats, in, in terms of genetic selection and, and advancing, you know, quantitative objective measurements uh, for genetic selection, the, the goats have not maybe jumped on board to the same degree that that the sheep folks have, uh, and especially as we look, the thing about cattle and hogs and other species, you know, they've, they've been using EPDs uh, for many, many, many years. They've had genomic technologies for a, a number of years now. Uh, the sheep deal, uh, they've had that technology since uh, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, to do what, to calculate what we call estimated breeding values, uh, that objective measurement of, of animal genetic merit. And it's been relatively slow uh, uh, adoption, but uh, we are seeing, you know, greater and greater uh, implementation now. Uh, we have a fecal, we have a, a breeding value for fecal count. So we actually have a, a tool now that we can we can quantify an animal's genetic merit for for decreasing fecal count, lower fecal counts, more natural parasite resistance. Uh, so if we can actually breed those sheep to be more parasite resistant and do that generation after generation. We get an animal that that rarely needs to be dewormed that that really fits in our production systems. Um, the goat folks don't have that. Um, at this point, it's available to them. Um, I, I want to mention that as well. You know, it, we all of this is run through the National Sheep Improvement Program, and I know it's called the National Sheep Improvement Program, but it is open, uh, and and we are welcoming of of goat producers. And I, I really encourage goat producers to get involved. Uh, this is a technology; it, it is our most accurate and most powerful selection tool that we have available, and and it's it's sitting there waiting to be utilized uh, by many of our goat producers. So. Uh, I think by utilizing and adopting some of that technology, they can start making measurable progress um, in some of those traits that are going to allow those animals to maybe fit in our, our climate a little bit better. Uh, and then typical goat things, um, you know, the, the old joke that if it doesn't hold water, it, it won't hold a goat. Um, I think people, you know, realize that, you know, unless you have pretty good fencing infrastructure, those goats are maybe at the neighbor's farm uh, during the time. I heard there a sheep producer in our state. Uh, he probably had the best analogy that I've ever heard uh, in relation to goats. Uh, and so he, we were at a, a meeting and uh, he was talking about the number of sheep and goats in the state. And uh, he's like, there's about 45,000 goats in the state of North Carolina. You know, they could be at your house. They could be at your neighbor's house. They could be at your friends five miles down the road. All we know is that they are within the boundaries of the state of North Carolina. And I think that represents a goat's personality and their behavior pretty well. Um, you know, and then they're horned. So it just dealing with the horns um, can be a challenge on, on equipment, on barns, on people, your knees, things like that. So it, there, some people love them, you know, personality type. Um, there is a market premium for them, but it comes with some challenges. Yeah. Andrew, the, uh, 
if we're going to talk about sheep and goats, I wanted to hit this subject. And we, you talked a little bit about wool. Um, the price, what, what do you think the future is maybe the next 20 years? For now, unless you have a long wool breed like Merinos, the wool's not worth that much. As you were saying, you have to pay somebody to shear it. Then basically it's a throwaway unless you um, have a good market for it. Um, are there still some producers out there uh, reading wool type sheep or are they on the downhill slope here in this country? Yes, that's a tough question. Uh, I mean, I would love to say, yes, there's going to be a market for wool in the future. Unfortunately, where we're at today, um, and especially here in the East, um, that outlook doesn't look great. Um, you know, it wool is and, and wool producing sheep are a challenge because uh, our market is really non-existent. Um, and especially with mid-states closing their doors uh, this past year, um, you know, where we sent a majority of the wool here on the East um, is no longer uh, taking wool. And so uh, we really don't have a great market for it. And we raise a lot of medium wool sheep here, um, which, which don't have a lot of, that wool doesn't have a lot of value. And so it, it becomes a challenge. Uh, you know, shearing costs are, are quite high. And, and I tell folks, and I tell my students, uh, really, when we think about wool producing sheep, uh, we need to budget in shearing and that wool production uh, on the expense cost side of our enterprise budget. And there's really not a whole lot that we can put on the revenue side, uh, unfortunately. Uh, we just need to factor in that it's going to be a, a, an annual loss uh, to get that, that wool taken off and keep those animals in a, in a healthy state. Um, and that's another advantage to hair sheep. It's really, if you have a hair sheep and a wool sheep that are equally productive, that hair sheep's making you more money because you're just saving shearing costs every year. Um, and so it's a challenge. Um, you know, out West where they're, they're producing, there's a lot of Rambouillet and Targi genetics, and they're producing those really fine wool uh, animals, those really high quality fleeces. Yeah, they're getting a little bit of money for their, their wool. Um, but really we see once you get, once you get over 22, 23, 24 microns, uh, it's not really worth much. Uh, and so there's a market maybe out west here in the east. I, I just have a hard I have a I have a hard time seeing anything coming back in the near future on the wool side of things. Are you and, talking and about the mid the mid states that was in Columbus, or is there one there in the Carolinas? That, that's correct. Yep, they're just south of Columbus. And they well, they did shut down last was it last May or something? Yes, was that's correct. Yeah, that was a that was a big loss there. But basically, they could be profitable, or what was the reason they shut down? Yeah, just it, not getting you know a quantity of, of high quality fleeces that they needed to keep the doors open and make ends meet. So um, just with the decline and in the wool market uh, and the, the amount of wool coming coming through their doors, um, it just it didn't make sense. I don't know all the details, obviously, but um, uh, unfortunately, that just their their business wasn't able to to keep going um, with the way the, the wool deal is today. So. Uh, it's unfortunate. Um, you know what? I want to see, I don't, I don't care whether they're wool sheep or hair sheep. I, I want to see the industry grow um, and expand and, and wherever those opportunities are. But, but we have to understand too, that growth is going to be driven by market demands, adaptability to production systems and our environments. And, and the way things sit right now, especially here in the East is you know, those hair sheep probably fit our environment a little bit better. And, our slaughter buyers are saying that, you know, 
a 60 to 80 pound hair sheep is perfectly acceptable to them. So until that changes, it's going to be hard to, to really see much growth in any other direction. Um, Andrew, is there a, uh, while, before we leave the wool sheep, I was talking to uh, Dr. Shrandon from uh, used to be at Maryland. Are there, is there a market for some of these where they're using a, they're crossing a hair sheep. I'm um, say, for example, I think she said Dorset, maybe a Dorset ram on Katahdin's and then uh, terminal feed out all the uh, offspring for, for processing. Is there a market for that or still too much wool? <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, I think there's a ton of potential there. Uh, and so um, I think when we talk about uh, using terminal sires, uh, okay, so we have that hair sheep and, and we all will admit, you know, hair sheep are not the heaviest muscled or fastest growing animals in the world. Um, so they could use improvements there. Uh, fortunately, we have a lot of breeds that excel in those two things. Um, and we know that, you know, through heterosis, we can get a lot of advantages to having that crossbred animal. Uh, and so we can use a crossbreeding system uh, to uh, maintain uh, an adaptable U base that is of one breed or, or you know, maybe a couple, if we want to run a crossbred U, uh, that's fine. Uh, and that there's lots of advantages to that. We can also use that terminal sire to bring in those terminal traits that the muscularity, the trimness, the growth, cross that on our hair sheet. And all of a sudden we get this lamb that, that possesses that added growth and muscularity and, and added carcass value. Uh, while at the same time, uh, you know, having some heterosis, hybrid vigor, um, and we still get to maintain that adaptable U-base. Uh, so there's that, there's a lot of power to that. Actually, that was my master's project was looking at terminal sire options for hair sheep producers. Um, so we crossed Texel and Suffolk uh, sheep on Katahdin use. Um, and I think there's a ton of potential there. Uh, the challenge right now and why we don't see a lot of that happening today is the demand for use is so high. Um, when you can sell a, a hair sheep ewe lamb for what you can, uh, there's no reason to go and, and use a terminal cross when, you know, and send all those lambs to slaughter. I can make a lot more money selling females as replacement ewe lambs. Um, you know, at some point, you know, it, and that's encouraging to see. It means our industry is growing. Uh, at some point, you know, we're surely we're going to max out um, and people are going to be satisfied with the ewe numbers they have. And then, and then I think the door is open to exploring the terminal cross as a way to improve the value of, uh, of the market lambs that we're producing. So uh, I, that's an, op an opportunity that's out there. And, and I know it's a, it's a hair wool cross, uh, but those lambs reach slaughter weight and can be harvested before they ever have to be shorn. So you don't oh. have to worry about shearing. Um, uh, can, so what's worked better, the Suffolk or the Texel? Uh, it depends on your, your environment. Uh, and so uh, that was kind of a cool project. We did half of it. We did in a forage-based production system in Southwest Virginia. And then we sent the other half of the lambs actually up to Morgantown. Uh, and Dr. Bowdridge had a graduate student that was working on uh, the other half of that project, focused on more of a feedlot type environment, measuring feed efficiency uh, and quantifying growth in a, in a more confinement type setting. Uh, so we really got to see, you know, if you're in a grass-based system, maybe what's the terminal sire for that environment versus more of a feedlot type system. Uh, the Texel is a very heavy muscled breed. It's a breed that offers maybe some enhanced parasite resistance uh, compared to uh, to many of our other terminal sire breeds, it's a more moderate frame breed. They're not going to get as large. So if you're targeting a non-traditional market at a lightweight uh, and you want a really stout, heavy muscled, shapely lamb, if you're going to develop those lambs on grass, uh, the Texel could be a very fitting choice for you. 
Uh, if you're going to put lambs in a, a confined system in a feedlot, if you're going to pour the feed to them and you want to raise 135 or 145 pound market lamb uh, that's going to be relatively trim, uh, then a Suffolk you know, is a potential cross that could work extremely well. We saw even on a 50% Suffolk, 50% Katahdin, we saw very good growth rates uh, through that finishing phase. Um, and so I think there's opportunity there. Uh, it really depends on on your environment and your market. Um, you know, in, in our Southeast system with a strong non-traditional market and a grass-based system, the Texel probably works better. Um, I wouldn't take a bunch of Suffolk lambs and turn them out to grass. You're going to run into parasite problems. Um, but if you're, if you're putting them in a barn and you're going to feed them and you're, you've got a market for heavier weight lambs, um, that could be a, an option as well. Okay. Speak, speaking of markets, where, when do those markets want, want these lambs or young goats? You see, you said their age, but are there certain times of the year that our breeders need to look at trying to hit or is that time of the year kind of getting flooded now? Like they have different holidays and different religions are looking for those more. Yeah. So it, it is based around a lot of those holidays. Um, and there's a, a few resources out there, the American uh, Land Board, the Lamb Resource Center, uh, they've got a, a, a holiday calendar, um, Maryland uh, Sheep and Goat Program, they've got a, a calendar put together as well. So there's a few resources out there on the internet, I encourage you to check out. Um, and so look at when those those holidays are. And the challenging thing is that our, our Muslim holidays generally move forward in the calendar year by 10 to 14 days every year. So mm -hmm. if you're... if if you're used to marketing lambs, let's just say you're going to sell lambs June 1st every year. Well, that might work great uh, for a few years. And then when that holiday that used to be at the end of June now moves up and is May 15th, now you've just marketed your lambs 15 days after the major holiday and the number of buyers that are going to be there and interested in your animals may be minimal. So uh, you really need to pay attention to when those holidays are. We actually have some producers here in North Carolina uh, that turn out their rams uh, 14 days, two weeks earlier every single year. Uh, and so they just, they they can market animals that are the same age every year, but meet those holiday demands um, and sell them at the same relative time point to the holiday. Uh, you know, it takes added management and you have to get, you know, some years uh, you're lambing in, in February, some years you're lambing in December. Um and so that's a, a challenge. And obviously over many years, it's going to going to shift. Um, but paying attention, I always encourage folks, start, look at your market and ask yourself, when is that market? When do I need to sell my lambs or my kids? And then work back from there. If I've got a June 1st market and I've got to have three month old animals or four month old animals to sell at that point, then you know when you need the lamb or kid, you know how long gestation is, you work back from there. And um, by and large, we really, it takes about a year from the time we, we start making those breeding decisions and putting rams in to the time we get through gestation and develop those offspring and, and there they reach market weight. We're usually in that 10 to 12 month range uh, for our non-traditional market. Uh, Evan, do we have any questions from the audience? Um, Crystal Criswell, she's across the river here. She's a sheep producer. She said the age of the animal matters as well. <clears throat> On that. Yeah, so there's certain holidays where where they need to be a certain age, um, and that's the other tricky thing, um, and it's something to pay attention to. And I would I'd have that conversation with um, you know a, a, a livestock marketer in your state or your your buyer directly if you have that that relationship with them. Um, ask what they want. 
Um, you know, there's a there's one holiday, uh, the Festival of Sacrifice. Um, they're going to want a little bit heavier lambs. They'll take 85, 90, 95 pounders for that holiday, where some of the other ones, they go back to that 60 to 80 range. So there's certain holidays you can push them a little bit heavier. There's certain holidays they want intact males. They, they really don't have, they'll buy females if they have to, but they really want intact males. Uh, and so there, there's a, every holiday is a little bit different. And so uh, keeping track of when, when they are and what qualifications, you know, kind of standards they're looking for uh, will help you target which animals to sell when. Um, it's something to be aware of, you know, as here in the next few years, we're going to have, you think about um, Easter, um, uh, the Easter holiday, which is relatively consistent, you know, late March to, you know, through April timeframe uh, between the Easter holiday, uh, Ramadan, and this festival of sacrifice. Um, you know, we're looking at the, where those Muslim holidays have moved forward in the calendar year, uh, we're looking at three three significant holidays associated with lamb consumption, all happening within a month of one another. Uh, so there's going to be where where we've seen that demand kind of be spread out over three four months uh, in, in years past. It's going to start to be more and more concentrated uh, during those that that March and April timeframe, uh, which also brings about the challenge that in most of our production systems where we're lambing and kidding in the spring, we simply aren't going to have animals old enough to satisfy that market. So, uh, you know, potentially looking at fall lambing systems uh, may be of benefit. Um, there may be some market premiums to be had uh, in that, that, that April-ish market here in the coming years. Yeah, the... Uh... Brad and Alex, do you have any input for uh, or questions for uh, Andrew? We're trying to get unmuted here. Uh, no, Andrew's done a good job covering the supply demand moving forward. It's going to be more concentrated. And there's going to be some opportunities for some out of season lambing to be profitable again. Cool. And uh, Andrew, real quick, uh, we started at the beginning of the uh, program. Tell us a little bit about this winter webinar series that you do, um, how uh, anyone can get registered for that, and what are the topics? Yeah, so uh, we're right in the middle of a four-part webinar series. Um, and so we've already covered uh, health and, and breeding season management. Uh, those took place in December and January, uh, but the recordings, um, they will be, uh, well, the health management webinar is already available. The, the recording for the, the breeding season management will be available here in the next few days um, once I get it posted. Um, and all of our previous webinars are all recorded. They're all available on YouTube. Um, and we've got links on our Small Room Minute web website. So if you go to, if you just Google, just search NC State Small Ruminant Extension, um, the, the link will come up. Um, just click on that. And we've got um, uh, on that page information about where you can find uh, all of our webinar, our, all of our past webinar recordings, because we did our first webinar series. Um, we've actually done a few now. Uh, we've done a beginner series. We've did it. We've did a series um, a year ago now. Um, and then this is really building on those. So kind of taking things to the next level. Um, and, and getting some producer perspectives on, on production. So that's where this webinar series is kind of unique from the ones in the past. We've asked experienced producers and specialists uh, to join us and, and speak about their experiences and perspectives with these different management areas. 
Uh, so coming up next month, uh, we'll cover nutrition and grazing. I'm pretty excited for that one. Uh, we've got some pretty great speakers lined up there. That'll be February 13th. Um, and uh, the link for that is also on our website. I can mention it here. It might be hard to understand over a, a, a podcast or a, a recording, but it's if you just go go.ncsu.edu slash webinar underscore nutrition, um, you can get signed up for uh, that February webinar. That'll be at seven o'clock. Uh, they're about an hour and a half to two hours, depending on how many questions we get. Uh, and then our final webinar for this uh, series is in March, uh, March 5th, and that'll be on genetic selection. Uh, the link for that is go.ncsu.edu slash webinar underscore genetics. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about genetic selection technologies and tools and, and some perspectives on breeding animals that are, are more fit for our environment and our markets. So um, been a great webinar series so far and looking forward to the, the final two uh, sessions here in February and March and encourage uh, anyone listening to uh, get signed up um, or at least uh, check out our website and find the links for the recordings and, and watch those uh, in your own time. Yep. And um, JJ, um, Crystal does have something here going on with the Muslim population in our region. Hey, um, as Evan said, I live um, just across the river from him down here in Southern Ohio. I'm a really a small uh, producer. So I found it's best to work directly with the consumer because it doesn't make financial sense for me to try to load up, you know, 10 lambs and drive three hours to go to Mount Hope. So I work directly with the consumer and um, we've, our Muslim population is really growing here. We have at least 400 families in Charleston and I don't know how many in Huntington yet, but they, I've had them coming to my property several times um, and they will butcher their own animal and they pay premium prices. So that's something that farmers should consider as an option. Um, and then also I've been starting to work with my local local butcher to allow them, the the people to do the slaughter piece, which is the most important part for them. Um, and then they can transport, we can transport the carcasses that have been basically field dressed to the butcher and he can, he completes the processing portion. And they're, they're very excited about that as an option. So just wanted to share those ideas with folks. Right. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Just something to keep in mind. And I'll just mention for North Carolina, I don't know the regulations in every state. I don't know what they are in West Virginia. Um, our state, I'll just speak for North Carolina. Um, we on-farm slaughter uh, is technically illegal. Um, we can't have folks processing animals on farm. You, you can process them for your own use, um, but I can't have someone come on my farm and kill an animal and then they pay me and they take it away um, because that's you're technically offering a, a harvest facility. Uh, and so it's not inspected. So thus you can't get paid for it. Um, so that animal has to leave your property live uh, here in North Carolina. Um, as long as it leaves your property live, it doesn't matter. When they get out of your driveway, it doesn't matter. Um, but they just have to leave live. So I'll just mention that for North Carolina. Just pay attention to what each individual state's regulations are, uh, just to make sure you don't get yourself in trouble. Um, but um, there are certainly opportunities there. And, and they are certainly interested in coming out to the farm and, and selecting those animals and identifying the ones that, that they want. Cool. Um, Andrew, maybe let's switch gears. Um, we are supposed to be talking about getting ready for lambing and kidding season. What, uh, and I'm sure that starts with the you and the doe. What, um, tell us a little bit about um, uh, vaccinating for the clostridials. 
how that can uh, help out our lamb and kid survival and um, maybe what higher plane of nutrition those animals need before they uh, get ready for lame and kidding season. Yeah, so uh, it's that time of year. Uh, I think for many of us, um, we're probably either already lambing or uh, getting close to lambing, thinking about lambing. Uh, here we're, uh, where I work, we're about 30 days out now. So um, it's, that, it's that time of year. So when we think about preparing for a successful lambing or kidding season, uh, vaccination, like you mentioned, is a key component of that, are clostridial diseases. Uh, so we're going to vaccinate for uh, clostridium perfringens type C and D and clostridium tetani. Uh, and so those, they're, they're really, it's really the, the use or the dose, it's their booster vaccine. So they need an annual booster. Uh, and so the best time to give that is about 30 to 45 days prior uh, to when lamyr kidding uh, is supposed to start. Uh, that will allow that animal to uh, to build up an immune response and to pass some of those antibodies through colostrum, through, through passive transfer, uh, passive immunity to their offspring. So uh, by doing that and, and timing that appropriately, you know, in technically we could give the use their booster any time of year, but by strategically doing it prior to lambing, uh, that is going to allow us to, uh, to maximize the chance of passive transfer. That's going to allow those lambs uh, through colostrum consumption uh, to be protected from uh, these diseases for about the first month of their life or so. Uh, essentially, the lamb or the kid has to get old enough where when they get their own vaccination, they have a competent immune system where they can respond to that vaccination, generate immune response, uh, and build up uh, those antibodies on their own. And so uh, that it takes, they got to be four to six weeks old before we can, we can vaccinate the lamb or the kid themselves. Uh, and so to protect them there early on in life, it's really essential that we vaccinate their mothers pre-lambing, kidding, to make sure we can get those antibodies in that colostrum and get them the, the protection that they need. So uh, 30 to 45 days prior to lambing, kidding, that's kind of a time point that, that I encourage a lot of producers, just put it on your calendar. Uh, when are those animals due? Go back a month, six weeks, uh, mark on your calendar that you're going to that's kind of the, the starting point for late gestation and preparation uh, for, for lamb ear kidding. So the first thing, yep, like we talked about, you're going to give your, your annual vaccinations some other things to do at that time point. Um, and you alluded to it already. Uh, we're going to bump up their plan of nutrition. So we're going to get them on a, on a higher level of energy and protein uh, to meet those late gestation needs. Two-thirds of fetal development happens during late gestation. So we have rapidly developing fetuses. Um, oftentimes there's more than one in there. So we have rapid fetal development taking place and that rapid fetal development requires nutrients. Uh, at the same time, as that fetal development occurs, uh, that is there's only so much space in a sheep or goat's abdomen. So as the uterus gets bigger, uh, there's less room in there for a rumen, for feed intake, uh, for capacity there. So we, we run into this struggle where we have rapid field development that's demanding lots of nutrients, that's taking space away from potential for nutrient intake. And so more often than not, we need to feed a more concentrated uh, feedstock. So we need to feed feed that's, that's denser in energy and protein so that essentially they can get more nutrients in a smaller volume. Uh, so oftentimes that's gonna require some supplementation if you're in a grass-based system. I would say, you know, if you've got some stockpiled forage, you know, 
save the highest quality stuff, your highest quality pasture for late gestation. Uh, if you're feeding some hay, save your, your highest quality hay to feed during um, that late gestation. You know, early mid gestation requirements are still relatively low. You can get by on, on some average quality hay. Um, as we enter late gestation, make sure you have some nice hay available to feed them. Or, and what most people do, um, you just start, you add in some supplemental feeding. Uh, and the, the rate of supplemental feeding is really going to depend on, on your lambing, expected lambing percentage, uh, as well as uh, the size of your animals. Uh, but uh, you know, somewhere usually between one to two pounds per head per day of, of, a, of a concentrate supplement um, will usually meet uh, those requirements for additional energy and protein during that time period. Uh, Andrew, so going back real quick to the uh, uh, the CD&T, do you still get a lot of yeah. calls of uh, um, producers not uh, losing lambs? Or, or are most of our producers vaccinating for that, or is that still an issue? I think most of our producers are vaccinating. I don't get very many calls about, uh, you know, overeating disease issues or tetanus issues. Uh, very few. So I would say that 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 vaccination program has been pretty well adopted. Um, if you're a new producer, um, that's definitely that's probably the most commonly utilized vaccine and something that that you definitely need to to consider and work into your your management program. Um, do you all see a lot of white muscle issues down that way? We don't, but I also think, you know, along with the CDT, I think that uh, utilization of a selenium and vitamin E supplement um, is also a relatively accepted practice now. Um, so BOCI is just one example. Uh, BOCI is uh, under prescription, so you can't just go to the feed store and buy BOCI. Uh, you need to work with your veterinarian uh, to acquire that, uh, but it is a vitamin uh, E and selenium supplement that uh, will help prevent white muscle disease. So, so lambing, lambing kings it already happened for producers if it's not already started for some. I've noticed when people on Facebook showing pictures of lambs and goats being born in calves and everything else. What are some things that our producers need to have in their toolbox ready to roll at eleven o'clock at night when they know that lamb that you usually get our lamb? Oh yeah, that's that's kind of a loaded question. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you know, I could laundry list of things, uh, a list of things to have available. Um, and you know the, the the things that that come to mind real quick. Um, you know, some lube, some OB sleeves. Um, you know, we always want to, you know, protect ourselves and protect the animals when we need to go in and assist, assist with those dystocia uh, cases. Um, so being prepared for that, having a halter available, that's something we might overlook. Um, you know, if there's, if you're out there by yourself and you need some way to restrain the use, so you can figure out what's going on, having that halter available and being able to tie her up uh, and work on, on what's going on, it, it can be very helpful. Um, a flashlight, depending on the, the situation, um, you know, a good lighting source uh, to be able to tell what's going on. Um, any tools you might want for a dystocia case. Um, some people just use use their hands and, and make that work. Some people like to have a, a head snare or a leg snare. Um, some people like to use um, some form of OB chain. Um, I know there's a, a few products out there and uh, that can be utilized. Um, some of that comes down to personal preference. Um, but having that stuff and being prepared there um, you know, I would say once that lamb is born or that kid is born, uh, it's good to have some iodine on hand uh, so we can disinfect that navel, uh, minimize the chance of any uh, navel or joint ill uh, from taking place. Um, if we've got a really long umbilical cord, uh, we may want to trim that. Uh, do not trim it very close to the, the, the stomach of that animal. We want to leave at least two inches there on that umbilical cord. You think about that's a highway into the abdomen for bacteria. So we need to have that buffer there. Um, 
And so uh, having some scissors there just in case we need them, although we don't need that for every animal. Um, and then, uh, you know, be prepared to, to check that you, her udder, um, and make sure that, that her teats are stripped clean. You got good flow in milk. Um, there's no signs of mastitis. Um, and, and the teat size is acceptable for those lambs or kids. We run into problems where we get really large teats uh, and those, those newborn animals just have a hard time latching on. And in those scenarios, you may need to milk down uh, that udder a little bit um, and relieve some of that pressure uh, so that lamb or kid can start uh, nursing. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, you know, you, you're going to run into those scenarios, unfortunately, when uh, that ewe or that doe has a half bag or maybe a completely unfunctional bag. Um, and you need to be prepared to, to feed those lambs or kids. Um, the, there's nothing better. Uh, I call it like the golden juice. Uh, there's nothing better than the real stuff, colostrum, uh, that, that first milk that's produced, you know, in the first 12 to 24 hours. Um, and that needs to be in that newborn uh, within 12, 24 hours max. We, we say 24 hours, really, if we can get it in within 12, that is ideal. And they need about 10% of their body weight uh, in colostrum. So if you have a 10 pound lamb, they need a pound of colostrum. That's 16 ounces. Um, and so do not give that to them all at once. Uh, space that out over several feedings. I, I don't give more than four ounces at a time. Uh, so that'd be two big syringe fulls. Um, so, but you can do that over, you know, a, take a few out, three, four hours, give it again um, if needed. Now a normal lamb and in 95% of cases that that animal's born, they start nursing on their own, you've got nothing to worry about. Uh, I'm really speaking now at that, those few cases when that, that female, that mother doesn't have enough colostrum um, and we need to get it to them artificially. Uh, so I encourage folks, um, have some colostrum on hand. Um, and if you can, if you've got a, a URDO, she has a single, she probably has enough milk for two. So milk out some of that, uh, put it in a Ziploc bag or in a test tube and freeze it. It freezes for a very long time. Uh, I just, you know, write the U, maybe write the UID number on it, write the date that you collected it just for your reference um, and have that, put that in the freezer and you can store it there. And then when you run into that scenario, when that U doesn't have any milk, uh, you have that colostrum stored uh, to go to and to, to provide as a supplement for those lambs or kids. Uh, do not, do not thaw it in the microwave. Uh, that the microwave will just destroy all of, you know, antibodies are proteins. So the microwave is going to destroy the whole, the whole reason we're giving the colostrum. Uh, you warm it up in some lukewarm water, just nice and slowly warm it up. Make sure that colostrum's at lamb body temperature, 102.5, um, before you give it. Cause the last thing we want to do is take cold colostrum and put it in a lamb that's already susceptible to chilling. So make sure it's warm. Um, and you can give that that supplemental colostrum in that way. Um, the challenge becomes, you know, the what the worst case scenario is when the very first you or doe that lambs, she's the one that doesn't have any milk. Because if you haven't thought ahead and been proactive and saved some milk from the previous lambing season, you're in trouble. <laughs> so stockpile, even if it's at the very end of the lambing season and you think you're you're in the final stretch and you're good to go. Uh, if you still have that that female that has some extra colostrum, milk a little bit out, even if it's just four ounces or six ounces, milk a little bit out, freeze it, just put it on hand, and that's kind of your your stockpile for the start of of next year's landing season. Now, Andrew, is there a? I know for uh, cattle that there's a couple really good products that are they're exp more expensive, but they are made from uh, um, pure colostrum. 
Um, they're almost twice as much as the some of these supplements they call them. Are there ones that you'd recommend that are uh, made for sheep and goats? Yeah, I mean, there's products out there. Um, different companies have different products um, that are utilized as colostrum replacers. Uh, and certainly that have a bag on hand. Um, that's kind of the last resort. If if you don't have any actual, you know, real colostrum saved up, uh, if that's the only thing you have to go to, you know, certainly, certainly utilize that. Um, you know, we keep a bag on hand. Um, don't use it very often, but keep a bag on hand just in case. Um, but I, I would certainly encourage producers, if in any way you can collect, you know, excess colostrum, real colostrum off the animal and freeze it, that is going to be your best option um, for getting, you know, supplement to those animals that need it. And while I'm I'm kind of cheating here a little bit, I'm I'm looking on a, I'm not sure if you wrote the article. It's on the Maryland uh, Small Ruminant page, which actually is a really good resource for all of our producers out there. Uh, do we need to put a coccidiostat? It's recommending Bovitec ruminant or uh, decox. So do we need to put that in our in that supplement before they lamb or kid? Uh, so generally it's recommended for, for coccidia management. You know, our most susceptible animals to coccidia are going to be our young lambs and kids, um, especially those lambs and kids that may be going through a stressful time period like weaning. Um, those are the animals that are most likely to break with a coccidia outbreak. Most of our mature animals are fairly resistant or resilient to it. You know, they may, they may shed some osis, but they're not, they themselves are not affected by it too severely. Um, we we can put it in our U-mix. Um, there's nothing necessarily saying we can't. Uh, should we? Uh, is it required? Maybe not on the U side, uh, but I would highly encourage producers to make sure that that coccidia stat is in your lamb or your kid feed. If you're creep feeding, make sure there's a coccidia stat in there. Whatever feed you're going to transition those animals onto around weaning and after weaning, make sure there's a coccidia stat in there, and that can make a huge difference uh, in terms of coccidia management. Evan, do we have any more questions from the audience? Not, not that I can see there. Um, if y'all do have questions, use the chat box. I mean, I'll, I need to go back and check the Facebook comments because I knew, saw we have someone there now. But let me do that real quick, JJ. And I will just um, mention you were talking about, uh, we we're talking about pre-lambing kid and kind of preparing. I mentioned uh, clostridial uh, vaccinations. Uh, I mentioned increasing uh, supplemental nutrition or uh, you know additional plan of uh, increasing the plan of nutrition. Um, just a couple other things I'll mention real briefly. Uh, I didn't want to forget about, um, you know, that 30 to 45 days pre-lambing kidding, it's a great time to check their feet, make sure they're sound, make sure they're functional. Yeah, we want, we don't want to handle animals a lot during that last month. Um, and so prior to that, um, if we need to flip them, if we need to check feet, trim anything, treat anybody, let's do it then. Um, if you have an animal that's limping, their feed intake is going to decrease. Well, when that feed intake de decreases during late gestation, we increase the likelihood of pregnancy toxemia. So we want our animals to be sound and functional and, and have that appetite and want to go to that feed bunk and eat. Um, so that's a good time to check feed as well. It's a good time to check uh, parasites. Um, if you already have a ewe that's very parasitized and now she, you're asking her to go into late gestation and lactate, you're setting yourself up for problems. Um, so check your FAMACHA scores. Um, you know, you definitely be cautious though. We want to check for parasites. We need to be cautious of what products we use to treat at that time point. Um, some products are, are safer during that time period than others. Um, and so if you think about like albendazole, valbazin, um, generally that we want to avoid that during early gestation 
Uh, late gestation might be safer. Um, there is some anecdotal evidence, levamisole, um, you know, there may be some concerns with levamisole during late gestation. Uh, and so just keep those things in mind. Uh, the way to remember that, albendazole A, early in the alphabet, early gestation, levamisole L, late gestation. Um, it, those, are the, those are the two products we kind of want to avoid during those respective time periods of gestation. Um, but it's a good time to check for parasites. Hopefully you don't have to treat anything, um, but just in case it's a good time to check. And if you are raising sheep that produce wool, that is the best time to shear. Um, you want to shear from not only a wool quality standpoint, uh, but from an animal health standpoint, uh, that is the time to shear. Um, you can get those animals shorn. It's going to, to take some of the moisture out of your barn, make it a drier environment that's less conducive to respiratory disease. Uh, it's going to allow those animals, you're going to have more space in your barn because you don't have that wool taking up space. Uh, the ewes can feel their lambs better. The lambs can find udders better. It's going to be a cleaner environment. Um, and it actually, the, the kind of unique thing is by shearing, we actually increase lamb birth weights. So low birth weight lambs is a common reason that lambs and kids die. Or, uh, you know, those low animals have a lot of surface area, not much body weight. They have a really hard time sustaining themselves and maintaining their heat production and maintaining their body temperature. And so we want those animals to, it's kind of opposite of cattle. We actually want those birth weights to be a little bit heavier for our small ruminants. And one way to do that is to actually shear the ewe 30 to 45 days prior to lambing. Uh, and the reason for that, uh, when we shear her, she gets you know slightly chilled, uh, not severe, but slightly chilled, and that causes her appetite to increase. You know, when she's really hot, she doesn't want to eat. Um, if we cool her down, she's going to want to eat more to sustain, to do more fermentation, to to sustain her body temperature. And by eating more, she's intaking more nutrients that can then be, you know, taken by those that fetus that's growing, um, and and result in a heavier. Uh, birth weight for those lambs. Uh, and so it, it's kind of unique how that whole system works. Um, but, you know, shearing prior to uh, to lambing is going to result in, in a cleaner, healthier um, environment for lambing and also probably a, a stronger, fitter uh, type lamb when they're actually born. And from a wool quality standpoint, we put the break on the outside of that fiber and we actually increase the, the strength of that staple and, and the quality of that wool that's produced. So, so that, that there's like, I know if you're supposed to crutch wool braids before they lamb too, right? So you're just knocking that process out too, because you're just going to shear them down. Correct. So, it, you know, if, and this is, this is a little bit environmental dependent. Um, if I have a, a two-sided shed and I'm in the mountains of West Virginia and it's, you know, five below right now, and I've got used due to lamb in a month, I'm not going to shear them. Um, you know, I might crutch them. So crutching is when you remove the wool around their rear end you remove any wool around their udder. Uh, that provides a cleaner environment for those lambs to be born into. It allows them to find the udder a little bit easier, uh, but you let that you have that fleece that she needs to stay warm. Um, now, if you have a way to uh, to get those, those females into a barn, get them some protection. If you're in North Carolina where our temperatures are, are relatively mild uh, compared to, to places further north, um, then you can go ahead and shear and, and you generally don't have a problem with that. And we do have it well, um question from crystal as well on any experiencing on using the mastitis vaccine she thinks it's called vimco i don't have any experience with that um alex brad do you all no that's a fairly new vaccine that i don't have any experience with either i had a question i was wondering okay. about the um additives in the feed that you mentioned like coccidia um stat or coccyostats um 
are those regulated, you know, with the new FDA, you know, do you have to get a prescription to have that medicated feed now? Those for our coccidia stats, no. Um, so where we're at today, um, you can purchase a feed that has a coccidia stat in it without a prescription. Um, now so it's you, just if you add the antibiotic components to it, that that would be required a prescription now. Correct. Correct. Andrew, what are your opinions on creek feeding? Yay, nay, do you have a lot of producers doing it? Uh, I get it. At it, it, the classic extension response, it depends. Um, <laughs> Uh, if, if my goal, if my goal is to sell Easter lambs and I'm lambing, uh, in the first part of January and I want to maximize growth potential, I want, I want to wean bloomy lambs that are as close to market weight as possible. Uh, then I'm going to creep feed. I'm probably gonna have those lambs in, in a barn anyway, because I'm lambing in January. Uh, and so I'm going to get them started on creep feed as soon as possible. Uh, it's really going to accelerate their growth. You're going to get some really efficient Lambs are incredibly efficient converters um, at young ages. They're they're close to you know functioning monogastrics, um, and so uh, they convert very very well early on in life. Uh, and so if you can get that creep feed in, you get really efficient gains early on in life. By the time you wean them, uh, they're they're just about at or very close to market weight, and you can get those animals shuffled off and sold uh, in a very timely manner for some of those early markets. Uh, that system can work really well. Uh, and then it off, you know, it opens up the doors to, you know, maybe you want to be in more of an accelerated type landing system. You can go and get those usury bred, start the process over again. Um, you don't necessarily have to do that, but that, you know, one scenario. Um, alternatively, if I'm in a pasture-based system or if I'm in a, a solar type grazing system and I'm trying to manage animals out on pasture, maybe I'm moving grazing allocations every one to three days, um, creep feeding logistically becomes extremely difficult. Because if we want, we think about the labor that's required. I'm already moving fence every one to three days to move animals, and now you ask me to go and I've got to drag a creep feeder around, and you know, in addition to the water tank that I probably have to move already, I might have to move shade. You're now you're at your you're looking at you know potentially three things in addition to the fence that you're moving on almost a daily basis, and that becomes really labor intensive. Uh, and so in a pasture based system, you maybe the the alternative is those animals you know relatively your feed costs are low right because you're you're in a grazing system minimal to no supplementation so your your input costs are already pretty low just manage them on grass and instead of weaning at 60 days wean at 90 or 120 days just let them stay on the use longer let them grow let them develop let them take their time um, move them frequently um, to to allow them access to the highest quality forage possible um and Sure, those lambs may not weigh quite as much at weaning, but you don't have very much, if anything, into them at that point. And then you can transition them on to feed after weaning. Um, and in a one to two week transition period, you can get them back. If you want to get them on feed, you can get them back on feed and they'll they'll grow just fine during the post weaning time period. Cool. Evan, we have any more questions before we finish I, this up? I don't, I don't see any here, JJ. All good. Yeah. And of course, Andrew, uh, we can't let you get by without asking you about, uh, my dad always said there's two types of music, country and Western. So I need to know who your favorite country music artist is. So I think I cheated because I, I listened to some of your guys' shows uh, <laughs> leading up to this because I, I kind of wanted to know how this all went. Um, and, and I was thinking about it last night and I was like, if I say anything other than country roads, is my degree going to get revoked? 
Oh, uh, John Denver, huh? Is that your final answer, or do you want to? Um, another I, mean, shot? I listen to a. I listen to a lot of Turnpike Troubadours, Forty Nine Winchester, uh, Russell County Line. It's a pretty good song. Um, so all that's good. I, I do enjoy Country Roads, so that's a good one. Oh, yeah. Brings back uh, lots of memories. Good. It means that you did some uh, did some preparation for our. our yeah, podcast. He, yeah, he did a Great. scout. Scout plan for us, JJ. Yes, yeah, for right. scouting, scouting. I think. I guess that's I've been all. in academia too long. I uh, I have this habit of going back and uh, maybe maybe doing a little bit of homework. Well, that's good. Um, real quick, again, we want to thank Dr. Andrew Weaver. He is the small ruminant specialist at North Carolina State University for joining us today. And Andrew, real quick, remind the audience uh, about the webinars coming up in February and March there for. NC State. Yeah, we got the webinars uh, February 13th and March 5th. Um, you can find the registration links to those on our website. They're also on our Facebook page if you're, you're a follower there. Um, encourage you to check out those webinars. Really looking forward to them. Uh, I also encourage you, if you, you missed our first two webinars, uh, check out our website and there'll be links there for the recordings. Uh, we post all the recordings on YouTube, so uh, you're able to go back and, and watch those. Um, let us know if you have any questions. Our contact information is available as well. So if you need any clarification, um, don't hesitate to ask. That's what we're here for. Uh, and so uh, look forward to, to working with everyone in the future and uh, hope you, you find uh, the webinar series beneficial and uh, hope you can join us for maybe one of our in-person programs sometime. Awesome. And, and JJ, um, quick program updates for com things coming up. Next week on Farm Talk, we have um, Dr. Rowan. She's going to be talking about the Dunk West Virginia Dung Beetle Project. And then Brandy and Alex and a bunch of us have that Annie's Project, the Women Ag program coming up in February. The Small Farm Conference in Charleston's in February as well. And then Appalachian Grazing's in Morgantown in March. So make sure you all check out those programs. They may have some content speakers scheduled you all might want to be interested in joining us for. Yeah. Um, yeah. What uh, What else we have coming up for the – I know we have uh, – Dung Dr. Beetles. The Dung Beetles is next week, correct? Yeah. Um, and then February 2nd, I think – He's out of North Carolina too. The Amazing Grazing Project, right? Yeah, Dr. Matt Poor. Yeah. Is he yes. yes. He's for some reason, we have all these people from North Carolina State on here. And then, um, <laughs> and none of them said Wagon Wheel yet. Um, um, <laughs> Beef Market Outlook, yeah. February 9th. Cool. And then we'll right, be some bull, bull test before long. So, got some good programs coming up. Well, thank you again to Andrew and uh, everyone. Stay safe. We'll get through the snow for the this weekend in January, and we'll see you next week on Mountaineer Farm Talk. Thanks for having me.